Okay, I think I got that, it this time. That was really good. Hey. Hey. You, okay. So you heard it then. Yes, I did, Jamisa. And I can see where you turning it down and everything. That was really good. That was excellent. That was, that was so good. I didn't even bob my head this time. I was just watching. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hello. Hi. Another episode of Banter with Jabisa and Tracy. Or oh, Banter with Tracy and Jabisa. It is Thursday, November the 18th, 2021. We are almost through the month of November and the year of 2021. Holy smoke. Okay, now let me say this. First of all, this is normally, this is a little later than we normally record. Yes. So the music has really perked us up. <laughs> it- but we don't know how how long it's gonna last. Like caffeine shot, we gotta hit it before it wears off. <laughs> you know when you get no talking about girl, I got to do this before eight o'clock. Before eight o'clock, because after eight o'clock, that is the bewitching hour. <laughs> I had um I had class today, and I had this little student bless a little heart. She was so sleepy, but she just uh-huh. couldn't go to sleep. I said, "Honey, you're gonna miss my story. It's so great." So she had to stand up. <laughs> I said, I'm going to ask you some questions. Pay attention. And bless her little heart. She, she woke up and she paid attention. She answered my question. It was a great story. Oh, my gosh. I have to share that, too. Okay. I what? know we have some things on the agenda. So we're let's, go gonna... let's just go with it. Go ahead. Okay. Well, we have some things on the agenda. We're, we're honestly, the, the music has perked me up. Um, of course, well, Veterans Day has passed, but we still want to touch upon that because that's such an important holiday. Um yes. We're going to talk about the movie Passing, which is on Netflix. Um, now, neither one of us have seen it, but of course, we have a we whole have bunch of opinions. Yes, <laughs> like, because that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. My husband was like that when we did a book club. Like, he didn't even read the book. He's over there. I was like, he didn't even read the book. Um, and then we're going to look at the, the trials um, of um, Ahmaud Aubrey and then the Rittenhouse trial and as of today, neither one of them, well, they're, they're doing the closing arguments for, no, they were doing the, the cross, the prosecution was in the, in the um, Aubrey case, the mm-hmm. prosecution was questioning the defendant and in the Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse case, they're still deliberating. So they have yep. the jury has it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and of course we're going to have an inspirational quote in, give you a black business that you can check out but so we're gonna start with veterans day because that's actually passed yes tracy you're gonna share what the history and background of veterans day is that correct uh, just the blurb this ain't gonna take long okay so um (laughs) (laughs) so veterans day and it's very it's very important i'm not demeaning that at all but just say as far as my research and almost eight o'clock gotta hurry up get done because i want what is it you turn back i turn i'm gonna turn into a pumpkin um (laughs) So um, after World War One, also known as the Great War, officially ended with the tr- when the Treaty of Versailles was signed in June of 1919. Um, the, however, fighting ended seven months earlier when an armistice or temporary cessation of hostilities between the Allied nations and Germany went into effect. Um, for that reason, November the 11th. 1918 is generally regarded as the end of the war to end all wars and that's interesting to me because that was world war one 
And so apparently it was not a lesson enough because there was a World War II. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because at first I said, I thought that was World War II because, you know, but anyway. The war, the war to end all wars. Yes, was not, actually was not, did not do that. <laughs> but anyway, so in November of 1919, President Wil Woodrow Wilson proclaimed November 11th as the first commemoration of Armistice Day with the following words, to us in America, the reflections of Armistice Day will be filled with solemn pride in the heroism of those who died in the country's service and with gratitude for the victory, both because of the thing from which it has freed us and because of the opportunity it has given America to share her sympathy with peace and justice in the Council of Nations. Ooh, that was very well said. But anyway, so Congress um, recognized it at the end um, or in, um, I think, June 4th, 1926 is when it was officially record. Oh, no, that was the end of the World War One. I'm sorry. Anyway, we just want to say thank you to the veterans who have served, do serve, and will uh, and will serve the country because their sacrifice is, is like no other. And they do it voluntarily because there's no yeah. um, draft anymore. So people that volunteer to serve the country, and it's a little kind of messed up right now, so I, I admire people in the service even more because sometimes I'm thinking like, why am I even trying to serve this country when it's just acting so silly? Oh, and I, I just want to add to that. Um, and it was it was Armistice Day and then they changed it to Veterans Day in 1954, I believe. Um, I think that's correct. But one of the things that I discovered um, when you when you talk about our military, um, we often... I do, uh, let me say, I can't say we, but you know, we have a vision of what our military looks like. And I think um, it's changing. Our military is it's quite diverse. When you're, if you were to take the military and look at it as a company, it's quite mm -hmm. diverse, but there, there's a group of men, there's a special group of men who only recently have gotten the um, acknowledgements that they deserve for their contributions to World War II. Mm -hmm. And so that's the Navajo Indians who were the co-talkers. And yeah. one of the reasons, one of the things that I love about my job is that I am constantly learning. So um, I learned mm -hmm. about the Code Talkers um, a couple of years ago, and I shared that with the students. And so um, we, we're doing the same thing this year again. So the Code Talkers was a group of, so in the midst of the war, let me back it up, in the midst of the war, um, you know, with your enemies, you're translating information um, in code with the hopes of them not figuring it out, but every code that the United States had, mm -hmm. um, Japan was able to break. So, you know, they were fully aware of whatever plans the United States had. Right. Um, this, this is, the story is based on um, Chester Nez was a, a young Navajo man who um, at one point in the United States, they would take the Native Americans from their home and put them to boarding schools and and speak poorly of the language. You know, they would say your language wasn't important. You need to learn English. Right. Um, they would cut their hair. This whole kind of um, minimizing and um, negating your your culture and your heritage for, heritage. Right. for you know the white man's culture and heritage. But uh -huh. so you know he he was told this going to boarding school, but he had enough um, presence of mind to maintain his connection with his language and his culture and his heritage. So mm -hmm. in the, after. Um, the United States was bombed in Pearl Harbor. Um, they went to the Navajo and they needed um, 
Navajo Indians who spoke, or Navajo, Navajo Indians who spoke English and Navajo. They were recruited by the U.S. Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And they, they, there was 23 original code talkers. These okay. were 23 men who created the um, code. Mm-hmm. Um, so they put them in a room and for 13 weeks, they worked through and they came up with the code. Now, what I didn't realize is that the Navajo language was an oral language, so they didn't have um, a written, written word. Right. Uh-huh. And so they had to create this code and we were watching a video and I really am thankful for um, YouTube and, and, and moments in which things have been recorded and they're easily available. They're having okay. access to it. But so they were right. talking to Mr. McDonald's, one of the code talkers. And he said, you know, these 23 men had to go into this room and they had to figure out a code uh-huh. for translating information back and forth. He says, but there were things that just were not in our, in our, in our language. He says, uh-huh. we didn't have a grenade. Like, so they didn't have a word for grenade. Word for gr- right. Um, right. So they had to come up. So he says like, so potato was grenade. Um, <laughs> and so he said, you know, they didn't have a word for um, a submarine. He says, mm-hmm. cause you know, we didn't have submarines. So they did like, um, I think he said like iron fish. So it was really impressive how they had taken their language, incorporated it with English to make this code that was unbreakable. Right. So, um, so these, these men, it was 400 code talkers total, but the 23 were the ones, the, the original 23 were the ones that created the code. The last of the 23, Mr. Um, Chester Nez passed in 2014. He was 93 years old. Wow. So these, these young men, worked as code talkers the war ended and they could tell nobody what they did it was a top secret for over 20 years really yes for over 20 years they kept it as top secret so they did not know uh-huh their contributions to the war and, uh-huh. and what's come out afterwards is that the, the code was unbreakable so nobody could ever break the code uh-huh. and probably because of the code talkers, the war could have extended probably longer, but their contributions saved many lives, first and foremost, mm-hmm. probably had, had an impact. I know there were other factors that helped, you know, of course, the bombing really mm-hmm. was a factor, but, um, but it, it may have been a factor in shortening the length of the war as well. But it's just incredible what these men did. And, and I think the irony for me is the fact that their language was um, negated early on uh-huh. you know the the um the, the people at the boarding school were just telling them this was a bad language you don't need to know this language and this is the language that really helped the united states um you know win the war and it, uh-huh. it's it, it's interesting because when you think of native americans and you think of black folks and one of, if you read the book and it's a children's picture book but it's a great book but one of the things that the um is stated is that Mr. Um, Nez wanted to prove his worth by learning English. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this, and I know black folks as a race, we've done it. We, we wanted to prove our worthiness. You know, we, yes. it's like, if you're, you don't ever hear of, I have never heard of Tracy and I could be wrong. I've never heard of a group of white people saying they want to prove their worthiness. No. But, it, you know, other groups who come to the United States who are non-white feel a need to prove 
their worthiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's a beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. Um, there, it's, it's just incredible. When I watch the video, I I don't cry. I think the very first time I was on the verge of tears because it just mm-hmm. it was. I was proud. I was happy, but I was sad. Uh-huh. I was sad. I was sad that you know all the trauma that some of those young men had to go through, um, and then you know not to be acknowledged. And many of them had passed before they were even acknowledged. But you know it was like almost yeah, it was well over twenty years before. Um, what made them finally acknowledge acknowledge it? Um, they were able. Well, they kept the code because they just didn't know if they would ever need it again, particularly since nobody had broken it. And then technology right. had come into play, was able to create even more secure codes. So that was the main reason. But um, but no, they they did not. So it's but that happened in World War II anyway. There were many um, men who came home and had done such val um, things, bravery that people you know they just didn't talk about it. And years later, they go in the attic and they find these these you know these purple stars yeah. and gold medals souvenirs and stuff that they did and people didn't talk about it. and that's funny because i think um now for stories of like recently um what was the um god the sniper guy i can't remember now everybody's a chatty cathy but yeah that's day, true yeah they didn't, they didn't talk about like what yeah. they did their their missions is like they were all very young men. Yes. I'm um, doing men, men, I mean, babies, if you even like 18 years old, that's very young to be fighting a war. A lot of people for the first time that they left home and, and went into those situations and they took it like, you know, they did a very good job and they didn't talk about it. No. Um, they didn't talk about it. So, yeah. So when you're when you're thinking of our um, veterans, you know, there's a lot of and I didn't realize that there's a number. Well, I want to say a lot, but there's a number of Native Americans who have served our our country with valor and bravery. And so I just wanted to point that out. It's one of those stories that I didn't know about. And, I, you know, I just want to make sure people are aware of the contributions. There is a monument. I can't remember what state it is. There is a monument. Um, really? Yes, there is a monument to the Code Talkers. Um, but it's just like I said, it's an incredible story. Um, I had the kids listen to Mr. Um, Chester Nez do the mm-hmm. first code that they that they said, and of course they had to translate. What was it? Um, it was it was? it was basically they were saying that there was a um, they were saying that there was a, a a a ship on the right flank and to destroy, and so. Okay. And so they said that they, and one of the other, the other benefits, because the government had, had invested in what they called the shackle. It was Uh called shackle and it was supposed to, it would, it was supposed to encrypt and decrypt a code, but it just took so long. Right. Whatever machine they had come up with would take hours to, to, you know, transfer and and, um, decode a a code where Mm -hmm. the Navajo Marines were able to do it. And they could do it. Very minutes, you know, three to four minutes. So, um, did they wear uniforms? Oh yes, yes, they were soldiers. Okay, they were they were Marines. They were Marines, which I thought was so. And I, I just, I think Marines are just the spiffiest dressers of, they, of all the servicemen. Well, you know, I'm partial to Air Force. I, I get that, but I, I but nobody outdresses a, a Marine in a dress outfit. I just there's yeah, they're, nobody. Yeah, they're, they're just um. Does are very very nice. I I 
agree, but I like boys in blue. <laughs> but yeah, so they so they all served in the Marines. Now the other thing that was really was interesting, just as a side note, and I'm sorry, I was kind of surprised that was mentioned in the, in the book, but in the what? book they talk about he comes back because war is horrid. Mm-hmm. And so he comes back and he suffers from PSTD. And yeah. um yes, yes, that's right. PTSD. Thank you. That's a PSTD. <laughs> yes, thank you for correcting me. But, well, but I know it, I think everybody knows what you're talking about. So yeah. Um, but he comes back and he's you know, he's trying to deal with that. So they have this cleansing ceremony for him when he comes back to his um tribe. And I thought, wow, they had enough presence of mind to realize that they had to work with him so that he could function. Right, because of all that he had in, had taken in, and he had witnessed, right? And he had witnessed, but th- but Tracy, but we sent our men to war and 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 have them come back, and we want them to be normal, right? Right, and with because we have no idea what they've been through. But I just thought that was that to me out of the. Yes. I mean, the story was just it's just a really great story. I will say this: there are a number of books written for children that are just as good for adults. I mean, I learned a lot from this story about him, but that whole idea that he came back and just had this cleansing is what they called it. Uh-huh. Because of his experiences and things he had seen that needed to happen in order for him to function. That, but you know what? That's good that they had enough presence of mind to do that. To do that. To do that. And, and you know, all the people who got nothing when they came back, you know, yes. who became alcoholics, drug abusers. Yes. yes angry just angry yes yeah so um, it's, it's it's a great story so you know as we honor our our servicemen and what I, I what i share with the children is that you can always you know of course veterans day is a special day but you can always see someone in uniform and just thank them for their for their service yes, they would appreciate i do that. I, every time every time i see someone i do thank them for their service but you be said i know you're right about that sometimes i take it better learning from a children's book it makes it makes it simpler they make it. I mean, they, they give you the facts. Uh-huh. Um, I think they 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 um try to give you a perspective of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, they try to make sure that you understand the the basics. Yes, you know. But but the other thing though, sometimes but the, uh, sometimes it can be a little sophisticated because I read some kids' books and I was like, I know this little second grader don't get this. <laughs> <laughs> Because children's books are written by adults. That's true. Yeah. So it's kind of like watching Sesame Street. There's like two levels of understanding. And I read some books. I was like, oh, I don't know if the little kid's going to get that. It was funny, but I don't think he's going to get it. And I, um, when I read stories to, um, usually by the time kids get in third, fourth, and fifth grade, they, they, they are beyond picture books. And they're, you know, they look at those as baby books and they're too grown for picture mm-hmm. books. But there's so many picture books that have a, a um, I guess a higher, I won't say a higher level of thinking, but there's a lot of inferences in there mm-hmm. that if I was to read it to a younger kid, they wouldn't get it as opposed to if I read it to an older kid or even things that I read myself, which I find absolutely hilarious, but I get all the little, the little jabs and inferences yeah. and little things that happen in that story. Right. And so I, you know, I always tell the kids, don't think you're too, you know, you're too, you're too old for picture books because there's often a lot of inferences and meaning in those books that, um, 
you have to have some background knowledge for it to make sense. Um, mm-hmm. But there's some, I mean, there's just some great picture books. I don't care what anybody says. Mo Williams is an absolute genius. He has mm-hmm. taken Piggy and Elephant and he has taken just a few words and just made it hilarious. Mm-hmm. And it is hilarious. It is hilarious for kids and it's hilarious for adults. And that's a really special gift. Um, it I is. would scream like he was a rock star if he walked into the room. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I love it. <laughs> yes, that would be me. That would be me. Your favorite. Yes, I'm a I'm a librarian groupie. <laughs> That's funny. You want to see a whole bunch of librarians get all excited, get the right off to walk into a room. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh goodness. All right, moving on. Moving on. Uh, we were talking. No, Jamel Hill had it on her Twitter. What? She, she tweeted out um, for people to share their first racist experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so CBS News came out with, and I, I did read it. I don't remember anything about it, though. But they, the question was, and you know, when is it the right time to talk about racism with kids? Right. And, you know, I know from working in an a, in a, um, education setting that particularly white folks are leaning toward middle and high school um where for many black kids their racist experience happens in elementary school yes <laughs> you know or not in elementary school but in that elementary school way age you know you don't necessarily right. get called you know they don't like right. okay we're not gonna call him a nigger until he's like in eighth grade right. um so in her tweet she sent out the tweet and she asked mm-hmm. people to you know respond and hundreds of people responded about the first time that they had a racist experience. And oftentimes, more times than not, it was when the kid was, it happened to a person in elementary age. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was one of the responses is that um, this gentleman has said that he would go to his friend's house and play, but he would have to leave every day at 530. Every right. Day by 5.30, he had to leave. Uh-huh. And so he, you know, he asked his friend, he's like, you know, why do I have to leave by 5.30? And his friend says, that my dad says, I don't want to come in my house and see no nigger in here. Mm-hmm. Um, my first time being called nigger in South Philly mm-hmm. time, um, mm-hmm. I, was in, I was in like fourth grade. Mm-hmm. I was in fourth grade. I was in fourth grade at the playground. And, and not that there was any justification for, for him to call me a nigger, but I can't remember anything that we were doing. But I remember that little white boy, little small frame white boy calling me a nigger. I remember it mm-hmm. like, just as clear as day. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying to think of a word that I could say back that would be as mean and demeaning and hurtful. And so the only thing I could say was you're a Polak because he was Polish. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, it was interesting. And so one of the things had, that had been said in that tweet feed, and this isn't the first time that it had been said, but um, the gentleman articulated it well, is that if a black child can have racist experiences in elementary school, then, then the white child can learn about it in elementary mm-hmm. school as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and I can't argue with that. I think that's very true. Right. Um, well, the other thing you know, is sometimes kids have racist experiences and they don't know what it was until years later. That I think that that that's more mine because I didn't 
Um, I can't remember like anything specific um, being that little. The What I remember is we were walking like in the little um, town when we went to school because we were in the military. My dad was in the military, but we were um, not on base. We were off base in one of the surrounding towns. And we were, there was some, um, some of my friends, it was, I think my sister, I can't remember who all was there, but we we're just walking down the street and somebody came, drove by in the car and yelled, yelled Nick at us. <laughs> Nick at us. And we were looking like, and so of course I said, your mama. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was so shocked because we like we weren't doing anything. We we're just walking down the street. And it was just um, you know, where we grew up, we, we knew there were like there were a lot of racist people everywhere you were then. Yeah. It was it was the it was the Midwest. So I know they say mostly in the South, but it's everywhere. It's all over the country. But it was just like kind of startling that it happened. We like we weren't doing anything where there was no confrontation with us or anybody else. We were walking by ourselves down the street. And, you know, as you say that, Tracy, when I'm thinking about the responses from um, her, her, her Twitter, mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was not that there's ever justification to calling someone a nigger, but, mm-hmm. you know, it was unprovoked. Most most racist experiences that kids had at an early age uh-huh. was unprovoked. I mean, they, they, yeah. they did nothing except exist in their blackness. And for some reason, that made somebody else uncomfortable. And because they were uncomfortable, they wanted you to feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, you know, it and it, I mean, I could tell you every time I've been called nigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and not in a loving way from black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it it as you said, Tracy, it surprises you and it takes you back. And so takes, yes. And it's like, it, were they talking to me? Like, yes. I'm, yeah, we're all very surprised. Like, we're like, what? What? Yeah, and so you know, I can remember all all of the times in which I've clearly I can remember all the times in which I've been called nigger. And recently, my daughter and I were in a car, mm-hmm. and we had come off the um, highway, and someone was just yelling out the window. Mm-hmm. And then I turned to my daughter. I was like, "Is did he said?" And she's like, "That's exactly what she said, what or he said, mommy." And then I'm backtracking, trying to think, what did I do? As if it was my fault that would justify him from acting that way. But I was like, I didn't do anything. Do anything. Nope, you didn't. And even if you had done something, cut him off or whatever it may have been, that was not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. That was not necessary. But we do that. We tend to say, like, what did I do? It's because that's the way, you know, it's always been. We always, we are always the ones in charge of, like, Okay, if somebody does something awful to black people, we're like, well, what do we do? How can we better let's make ourselves small so we won't cause this kind of, you know, negative attention to come to us? It's always the onus is always on us. It's always on us if somebody says something mean, bad to you, because we learned that in the book we read, um, right? Um, oh, stamped from the beginning. Or stamped. Yeah, stamped. It's like yeah. it's turned on us. Like we, if the onus is on us to make whoever said something or did something bad to us to make them feel better. Like they, the ones are, are wrong. And when they're being pointed out, they're wrong. Then they reduce it. Karen, white women reduced to tears. Yeah. And then we like, well, you shouldn't have said that to her. And this, that. And I was like, well, I'm the injured party. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens. White fragility talked about that too. Yeah. Um, how you're exactly right. The, 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 the person who was injured becomes the, the offender. 
the offender, right? Yeah, they become right. the offender. You apologize and say that I, I don't even understand how I got to say <laughs> I have to say I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so it it but it happens. It, it, and how do we change that? That I we said this trace. We talked about this. The most profound thing that came out of that book stamp for me was in the um, introduction. And the author says the only reason that white people are great is because they said they were great, and the only reason we're not great is because they told us we were not great. Right. That blew my that's mind. That's it. That is. That's mind blowing. Yeah, that was <laughs> mind blowing. So sometimes I have to remember um, that, which leads us to our next topic of the um, sh- the movie um, Passing, which is on Netflix mm-hmm. now. Tracy and I have talked about it, but neither one of us has watched it yet. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. And I just I just ordered the book. <laughs> and, I'm, I may read the book. I'm not a big movie watcher, so I don't think I, I would watch the movie. But um, I, will, I will watch it eventually. It's just probably over the Christmas break because there's so much going on right now. I just need a minute, some downtime where I have a, a day on the couch looking at movies. Oh, well, that'll, but, that, that'll be waiting for you. The Netflix yeah. loves that. They, they they love the fact they don't even let you pee on Netflix. <laughs> no, they don't. There's no bathroom break. But um, <laughs> yeah, the movie Passing is um, about two um two women friends both black but one is living as a white woman and the other is living as a black woman so it's um it was but i what i didn't know to be is that it was written in 1929 why well, i thought this was something recent like it was a recent writing i didn't realize that that um that it was as old as it was but yeah. now I read something that said that it didn't make that big of a splash during the Harlem Renaissance. But Jabisa said that what she read said that it was all the rage. So I'm not sure what to believe on that. Well, I don't. I, well, let me. Well, I, I don't think it was all the rage, but it it, it was a significant writing. So Nella Larson well, was the author, and so <laughs> she. Uh, I want to make sure I get this right. She was of mixed heritage. So uh-huh. her father was black. Her mother was white. Her mother remarried white and in, in her bio, if you read about her, they would so they had to move sometimes because of her, because of the racism of, of being the black child. So the whole family would move. Mm-hmm. She was kind of an anom- um, anomaly because she wasn't, she wasn't all black, of course, but she wasn't all white. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and at one point she, she was of Dutch. I think her mother was Dutch. She went over and lived in Holland. I think that's where you live if you're Dutch. And mm-hmm. then came back to the States. So her experiences were never the experiences of a, of a, a, like a Southern Black person or just as a Black person. So she, mm-hmm. she kind of wrote, was in that, that awkward, I would think, space of not really being this, but not really being that. Right. Um, she married a very prominent um, black physician. He was a physics, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, they divorced. Um, she was writing, and then he died, and so mm. she had she sought employment. She worked as a librarian and as a nurse. Um, I thought it was really funny because when you read her bio, she worked as a at a nurse as a nurse and went and worked in Tuskegee, and you know it. it it wasn't of the best conditions. And I guess that chick's like, you know what, deuces, I'm out. <laughs> she had options back then. Yeah, she she went back upstate and worked at a better facility, but I thought that was just kind of funny. Um, but in the, and one of the things that comes up when I was reading about the movie 
is um, there, there are a number of themes and topics that they touch, but what do you lose? What do you lose as a black person passing for white? And because of this belief that white is better, at the end of the day, is it really better? I mean, I can't imagine, Tracy, because if you're truly gonna pass, if you're truly passing for white, you have to cut all ties with blackness. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not like you could dip back in and what have you. Right. And in this particular story, the woman who is passing for white's husband is very much a racist. So you mm -hmm. definitely can't. And then and then I can only imagine the um I think the fear of the wrong move, the wrong look, the the um running into somebody, particularly if you live in a town in which you grew up in. Right. Um and mm -hmm. you know the whole you know Megan Merkel was indignant when they were questioning what her child was going to look like but that's a little you know that's something that that you know she could have had a little brown baby uh -huh. um you know so if you're if you're planning on having if you're having children you know you're just praying you know praying praying yeah. praying and then mm -hmm. what do you say when it doesn't look like the daddy mm -hmm. um so you know those are some things that i, I imagine is, ad is addressed in the in the movie um but you know we always we've been told that white is better. We see that white is better, but at the end of the day, Tracy, I don't know if it's necessarily better. I don't know. Well, you but know what? They say if you have to say it so much and reiterate it so much, it's probably not true. Like if you have to pound it in over and over again and you have to make all these laws and rules saying that it's better, then it's not. <laughs> so we've been really fooled. If it, well, if it, because if it was, you wouldn't have to do it all the time. It would just be plain and there it's better right. but if you have to say it all the time and have to reinforce it over and over and over and over and over again that would lead me to believe i said well good it's not good because if it's better it would be like cream rise to the top but it doesn't it gets to the top but not by rising by well, yeah, it, killing it, lying um court coercion overpowering stealing it's <laughs> to the top but not like cream not by rising by force yeah cream just make his way on out tomorrow we that good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look at us we were at the top yeah. um just as a side note as we talk about that you know that that notion of um of of privilege i guess there was a case in which this young man had raped these four girls, these mm -hmm. are all white. But at the end of the day, it was that it was one of those moments where the judge, instead of the, the young man getting jail time, he gets like probation because he shouldn't have to um mess up his life or whatever. Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I saw that. And oh you did and, and so yeah. the lawyer for the for the young women said something which blew my mind. He said if this had not been a white male yeah privileged um upper class family he would have yeah. been in jail he would have been in jail and you know what that was a white attorney saying that though that's the thing about that i was like whoa and he, that's he exactly what i there. said i said the same thing Trace. i was like oh my god he oh my said god. What every black person said watching the loud. news is thinking wow he said it but you know what i think more people heard it coming from him like people that wouldn't are like yeah yeah that's the black folks just blowing hard or whatever but with him saying it i think it did like like our ears perked up i 
not that it would change anything, but I think um, that other people heard heard it too, like maybe for the first time. Well, I hope so. I hope so. But he, he's, he's exactly right. If that mm-hmm. had been a middle class kid with, you know, um, maybe a mom who was a teacher and a dad who managed a bank, you know, it, he mm-hmm. would have had, he would have been in jail. Um, right. So, you know, that money and privilege and power is real. Um, it yeah. is. But if you haven't watched Passing, please do, even if I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I can read about it. I feel like that's just as much. Yeah. I am not, I am not a movie watcher. I'm a 30 minute yeah. sitcom, maybe a hour drama movie. Maybe drama hour, hour. Yeah. That two and a half hours. Uh, no, what what that's was the scene? Commitment for Jabisa. I I can do it, but that's too much of a commitment for Jabisa. <laughs> it is. It is. We went to see, we went to see the Matrix, and I remember I'm not one to leave a mo- movie, but I was like, I am so ready to go. I mean, let's just take the pill and live in a world that <laughs> that, that doesn't look good. I mean, it just I, let's. Keanu Reeves needs a tan. Oh my God, he is so pale. And then, and Tracy, I was ready to go. I was so ready to go. And then when Keanu Reeves said, I need guns, you remember that music started pumping in the Matrix? And he says, I need guns. And that thing said, and all those guns came up. And then she had, they had the long leather coats and the leather boots, and they were shooting stuff up. Uh I turned to my husband, I said, I want a gun. And I want a long leather coat and some leather boots. <laughs> That's funny. That's when I woke up. But I, but yeah, okay. so that was good. But up until then, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't, I'm not gonna make it. I can't. I was like, oh my God, how much longer is this gonna be? Oh, yes, I was moaning and groaning. But yeah, that perked me up. But no, I, I'm not, I'm not a two hour. So the likelihood of me watching um, passing is pretty slim. But um, I read a lot about it, so I'm thrilled, and I will hopefully read the book. Um, it's giving her, um, Laura Nelson, a lot of um, attention that she hadn't had. Oh, just as a just a little diff- yeah. different information, she was a nurse and also a librarian. And I just wanted to throw that out. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yes. Um, once her husband passed, that pretty I think put a damper on her writing career because she had to do what many women have to do when they don't have a source of income. She had to work. She had to work. Right. She had to work. So, but, um, but yay for her now. Yep. Yay for her now. All right. So we, did we talk about the trials? Not really. Okay. Well, the, um, Kyle Rittenhouse and they're in deliberation. I think you did say that earlier. And Amon Avery are ne- they're nearing the end of the thing, but, there were some things to note about the two trials. Like in one, the um, murderer is a young white man. And then all of the um, the support that he's getting from the judges, like judges are supposed to be impartial now. You know, I'm not a legal person or a law person, but I think that's like a basic thing. Judges are supposed to be impartial and, and interpret the law. Yeah. They don't determine that this is dumb. So I'm not going to or whatever so i'm not sure but the judge in the rittenhouse case he's 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 a piece of work and he should be at at the very least um removed from the case and at the most removed from the bench i think i just don't think he needs to be served 
you know, search sitting, a sitting judge, because, you know, if he's doing this on this level with this, and the only reason we see it is because it's on a grand scale, but I'm sure he's an older fellow and I imagine he's been doing this a while. So you just don't know the countless lives that he has messed up with his bias that clearly he possesses. So we'll see. Jabez is of the mindset that I think you think that they're going to um, convict him. Yeah. I think if they convict him, and that's a big if for me, I think the judge will commute the sentence or negate it or throw it out, toss it out, because judges do have that, the right to, it's like, if, if, the, if in their opinion, the verdict is not right, they can vacate it. I like so to I think, I think, I think there's, yeah, you would like to think so, but I'm, we are both living in the country as it is, and that, I just don't think it's going to happen. He's going to, they're trying to paint him as the victim that crossed state lines with his mama driving him to go to a fight that wasn't even his armed, yet he's the victim. And I just don't think that the jurors, one, the judge definitely will see it as that. I think they're just saying, well, he's just so young. He didn't know any better. Yeah. So that's my thinking. I just, I have very little faith in our judicial system in this country i'm so. gonna have to believe tracy i you know i have to be the, you're the realistic but i will be the optimist but um but you're right the likelihood it, it's it's disappointing if he gets off i, mm-hmm. I can't say it's surprising you know it's, it's right. funny. we just talked about the judge who you know this young man who raped four women didn't serve any right. time so exactly it, it and if I'm sorry, go ahead. I was gonna, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if he had been a brown or black person, it would have been non-issue. He'd have been gone. Mm-hmm. It, it, exactly. And I think that's the part that I don't know if white America is always aware of how great the disparity is. No, it's not because it's always on their side. Yes, it's always on their side, but I don't think that they even realize the disparity, though. I know I, I don't even think it's always in their favor. So no, they don't realize. Yeah, it. they don't realize it because they have no reason to. And I get that, but it just it gets you know sometimes just being on the short end of the stick, you know, gets you know, it gets old. Well, let me ask you this because you've been following a little bit more. What was the what was why was the defense for the um the white men in the Aubrey case opposed to having a pastor. You know what? I don't even I don't even think he knows. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but that really put him he was in a snit about it. And then he said it again. He he did it again. Was it today or recently? He said it again that he was opposed to having the black pastors in there. So I don't know. I don't know if they were making eyes at him. I mean he shouldn't be facing them. So I'm not even sure what having their their presence in there and the jury is all white so it's not i don't think it's jury intimidation <laughs> i'm not sure i said what the worst they're gonna do is pray for you i don't think they're gonna you know i don't know i don't know and i think also too to throw you know in case things because it's not that one now is not looking as good I think Rittenhouse is more likely to get out than these fellows, even though only one juror is black. And so maybe 
the attorney is trying to muddy the waters and if somehow he's going to say having the black pastors in there did something you know because the law the, the it's there's a lot of written law and there's very like hinky things in there that you that you would be surprised they can pull that out and say aha for this reason in the um jones versus anderson case of 1932 yeah. you know you pull something out that you could use so maybe he's found something in the law that could muddy the waters by having black people in the gallery i don't know oh. I no and i really don't know that he did i said i don't know i don't know i, I don't know that it's just the craziest thing because everybody's like where did that come from they weren't loud they weren't saying anything they were respectful in the court other than you seeing them you wouldn't know they were in there so and that's why that's why i was really confused i was like well what were the pastors doing? You know, they showed Jesse, now, Jackson, Jesse Jackson was just sitting there. Sitting um, there. That's what they were doing, observing the case. Support, and they were there in support of the mom. Yeah. Who at son was killed. And see, that's the other thing, too. It's in the Aubrey um, case, a lot of times it seems like Ahmad is dead. He was the victim, but he is also like the defendant. Yeah, yeah, which is so, so sad. It's it so is. very sad. It um, is, but that's that's black justice in in the white judicial system. We'll see. I'm I'm gonna think positively in both cases that that justice is really justice, and not mm -hmm. just uh, how did how did she say justice is just not just us. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the way I'm seeing it. So you go ahead and be optimistic. I yeah. won't be realistic. I won't be disappointed. All right. Well, we're we're gonna find a, a happier note to end on. <laughs> Tracy, do you have a a beautiful quote for us? I I do. Well, beautiful might be a stretch, but I have one, and I like it. <laughs> okay. It says, "If you are not willing to learn, no one can help you. If you are determined to learn, no one can stop you." And that's by Zig Ziglar. I have no idea who that is, but I really like that. Zig Ziglar. That sounds so familiar. I don't know who it is, but if you are not willing to learn, no one can help you. And if you are determined to learn, no one can stop you. Wow. You know, well, thank you for repeating that. I like that. Now I'm going to have to look up, you know, I, I'm going to have to look up who Zig Ziglar is. I'm mm -hmm. really curious. Oh, wait a minute. Before we close out our black business, I forgot. Oh, oh. that's my job. So our <laughs> black business... <laughs> This time around, of course, we've been doing a lot of restaurants lately. We got to find some other um, businesses, particularly yes, the Christmas holidays coming up. Yes, it's always food. Uh, always, it has been a lot of food, but um, but you know that it's nothing wrong with that. If you're in Columbia, that's the other thing with food; it kind of limits you to the Columbia area. But if you're in Columbia, um, Red Rooster Sports Bar and Grill is open. It's been open at at least a couple of years now. Um, really, I've heard of it. I have driven past it. I'm not a bar and grill person, but it looks very mm -hmm. good. It's got rave reviews. Um, it is the home for bikers and car clubs, according to the little um, <laughs> post on, okay. on Facebook. So I imagine if you are a part of a barker, biker club or a car club, mm -hmm. you're fully aware of this establishment. Um, but if not, check it out. Mm -hmm. um, it's got plenty of TVs, outdoor seating, great service. Um, so if you're in Columbia looking for a place to um, go, check out the Red Rooster 
sports bar and grill. All right. Okay. Now, on that note, I'm going to get my music going. All right, you ready, Tracy? You can say bye now. Good night. Bye. <laughs>